for this whole year, we've been talking about two major themes, who we are in Christ and walking in the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, we're going to continue that this morning for a little bit here because I, and I, you've heard me say this before, I'm convinced that those two things are intertwined. It's as we know who we really are in Christ that we're more willing, more able to step out into the things of the Spirit. Uh, you know, the more that I look at the Gospels, the more I'm convinced that's what Jesus did over and over is helping them to understand your Father, your Heavenly Father, um, loves you, cares for you, and that was because of that understanding that they were able to, to take the power of the Spirit and turn the world upside down. So those two things really go together. And just, uh, and I'm going to be talking mostly about who we are in Christ, but I want to say one thing, and that is that um, as the, these gifts come forth, we heard a couple of words this morning, I want to make sure that we're not taking those things for granted. This has nothing at all to do with the sermon, but I, it's just such, such a, a strong thing. We heard a word last week about God's going to do impossible things. I'm convinced that's a word for us, that, that God is wanting to do in our midst impossible, in, in, in individual lives, impossible things. And so don't just, don't just hear those things and kind of let them go. Pay attention to them. What does this mean for me? And move on those things as God directs. So don't just kind of, you know, gloss over it. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word here this morning, we are once again inviting you to speak into us. We, we don't want to just hear a nice message. We want to hear your voice. And would you, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and in our minds. And we trust you to do that because you're faithful. Amen. You know, in the Bible, there's a number of different titles that God has. He's called the creator. He's the redeemer. Ancient of days, he's referred to as, uh, as, as our rock, as our defender. I mean, just on and on. But there's one title that I think we often miss, and that is that he is the author. Remember when, when Peter and John encountered the lame man and he wanted money and they said, we don't have any money, but we got something better. All right, that's a paraphrase. Um, and in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he did. And so Peter's addressing all of the people there because they're all amazed. They saw this bonafide miracle going on. And so he's talking to them. And uh, he, he says, you guys are the ones that, that turned Jesus over. You, you asked for a murderer to be released. And he says, you killed the author of life. You know, Hebrews chapter uh, uh, two talks about him being the author of salvation. Later in Hebrews Hebrews 12 to, refers to, to, to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. So there is this author concept that's one of the titles of God in the Bible. All right, so for me as an author, I'm kind of fascinated by this. I want to know, all right, if he's writing, what is it that he's writing? Well, obviously he's writing this, this big story. He, he's writing our individual stories, but he's writing this big one. And he's taking all of our individual stories that he's writing and kind of weaving those together into this big grand narrative that only God could write. But there's, a, there's an odd quirk in this whole story writing idea and that is that God is working with real live human beings to whom he has given a free will. See, when I write a story... The characters don't have any say-so in what happens. They do whatever I decide they're going to do. Any of you, did, did any of you see the, the movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas? Horrible title aside, it's the story of Charles Dickens writing his classic A Christmas Carol. It's really a pretty good movie because 
one of the things that happens is that every time he, he uh, writes in a new character, that character comes alive and is there with him and interacting with him and the other characters and trying to sway his thinking about what should happen in the story. It's, that's the kind of thing, honestly, that happens in the minds of a lot of writers. I can, I can attest to that, but it doesn't actually really happen. They don't, they don't actually come alive. I mean, I can go back and totally rewrite something and they don't have any say-so in it. But God didn't afford himself that privilege. See, he could have made us robots. We all have to do exactly what he says whenever he says it. But he didn't. He gave us a free will. And with that free will, we have the possibility of altering our stories, even greatly altering our stories, and even affecting other people's stories nearby to us. Now, it's not going to affect the the larger grand story, but here's the point I want to make. It's important for us to see our own stories from God's perspective. Because even though we can alter them, he, as the author, has final edit rights on those stories, especially for those of us who belong to him. So let me, let me give you an illustration. Some of you remember Pat Bailey. Uh, she was here for a number of years, single mom. Uh, she's been living in Texas for a number of years. I talked to Pat just a few days ago. and During the conversation, she made an interesting statement. She said that um, some people would look at her life and see her as a failure because her husband left her many years ago. Her kids have not always walked in the way that, that she would like them to, a number of other things that have happened. And so it would be easy to look at her life and see her as a failure. But more and more, she said that God has been showing her his perspective, that she is his child, that she is loved by him. And, and even the, the, the things that the people that she has seen who have been positively affected by her life, even those things aside, although those are good, obviously, the fact that there is a God who, who cares for her, who loves her, changes her perspective. See, I think, I think that's how we need to to see our own stories, not just from our own perspective, but from God's perspective. See, what we need to understand is that our story sounds so much better when it's told by the author. It does. You know, I always enjoyed reading to our kids when they were younger. I still enjoy reading to our grandkids. Story time is kind of a, a special thing. And this morning, I want to share with you some stories from Scripture, some of my favorites, but I want to show you God's perspective on these stories because it's so different than how we typically would read them. I want to start with Abraham. Abraham is this guy. I'm trying to get through this quickly in case you didn't notice. Abraham is this guy that, that God has given a promise that he's going to, his offspring are going to be like the sand, sand on the seashore. And yet we get to the end of Abraham's life and he has one son. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, he had other kids, Tom, by uh, other women. And I get that. I really do. But at the same time, I always think back when, when God told Abraham that he wanted him to sacrifice Isaac, the words that he says are amazing to me. He says, take your son, your only son. Apparently, from God's perspective, there really only was one. And we get to the end of his life. This guy that's supposed to have offspring like the sands of the seashore, and he's just got one. He, he tried to take matters into his own hands at one point. You remember that? Create 
that offspring thing. Read Romans chapter 4. Should be there in your notes. In hope, he, talking about Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. When I read that section of scripture, I'm like, wait, what? Abraham, that that guy in the Old Testament, I mean, forgive me for asking, but what about that liaison with Hagar that produced Ishmael? Wasn't this the guy that, that twice said, oh no, she's my sister? That Abraham, that, does this even sound like what we're hearing here? But see, our story sounds so much better when it's told by the author. Look at how Hebrews 11 describes Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. You know, if you take the section at face value, what it sounds like to me here is that Abraham's life was one unbroken, amazing step-by-step journey with God. When, when Barb and I were in Korea, when we were out in public, it was not unusual at all for us to see two women walking along arm in arm. And it wasn't a homosexual thing. It was just part of their culture. These were, these were good friends. They were cared for one another. And when I read this section of scripture, that's the picture that I get. God and Abraham kind of walking along, arm in arm, best buds. They're both smiling. Everything's perfect and rosy. That's what it sounds like. You and I both know that's not what really happened. But apparently, from God's perspective, that's exactly what happened. Our story sounds so much better when it's told by the author. Think about David in the Bible. He's mentioned more than 50 times in the New Testament, always in a positive light. He is without exception seen as the hero. He's the the archetype, the ideal pattern of the Old Testament kings. He was clearly the one that all the rest of the kings should have been like. And if they all had been like David, the narrative of the Old Testament would have been a whole lot different, right? Great guy, amazing king. Wait, wait, David, the the guy that acted insane to save his neck, David, the adulterer, David, the murderer. Our story sounds so much better when it's told by the author. See, God's perspective is, is so often so very different from ours, sometimes 180 degrees different from ours. David's story in the New Testament sounds a lot better because by God's grace, we're seeing him in a different light. We're seeing him from God's perspective, not the human perspective. We have a tendency to look at our lives and see the failures, we see the wrongs, we see the sin, but God's perspective is different. 
Oh, he, he's not ignoring the sin, don't get me wrong. He's not just glossing over it. No, because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin is gone. It is no more. We're new creatures in him. We've passed from death into life. We're brand new. Think of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses raised in the palace of the king. If you remember the story, one day he, he actually killed a, 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 an Egyptian soldier because he had um, uh, whipped or beaten a, a, a Hebrew slave, right? So, so read that story in Exodus 2. When Pharaoh heard of it, that Moses had killed the, the Egyptian soldier, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Based on that, why did Moses leave? Because he was afraid. He was, he, yeah, he was right. That's what it says. Pharaoh sought to kill him. Moses fled from Pharaoh. Pretty straightforward, right? Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It, it, it goes on after this to talk about the Passover and then all of them leaving. So this is not talking about the Exodus here. This is talking about Moses leaving to go to Midian. And it says that he didn't do it because he was afraid. In God's version, in the New Testament version, in the, in the grace version, he went because he was following God. Our story sounds so much better when it's told by the author. See, I think you and I don't fully understand God's grace. We have a tendency to rehearse in our minds all of the things that we have done wrong. I messed this up. I blew it that time. Screwed this up. Right? Don't we do that? But you know what? I am convinced when we get to that grand and glorious day that we're all going to hear that phrase that we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And it has nothing at all to do with us and what we've done. It has everything to do with Christ and what he has done. See, God's perspective is he sees us as perfect. He sees us as holy. He sees us as righteous. We only see with a very limited perspective. There's this, this little tiny piece of the puzzle, this gigantic puzzle, and we only see that little tiny piece from our very limited point of view. Let me try this from a different perspective. People tend to live into what they really believe. If we really believe something, we're going to live into it. I've told this story here before, but it's worth repeating, especially in this context. There was a, a, an elementary school teacher who at the end of the year uh, was told by the principal that the following year she was going to have a classroom full of the elite, the brightest and the best students in her grade. And she was going to be expected to take them further than what they would go on their own. And so she took the challenge. She, she was told that some of them might be... Um, you know, might be lazy, want to, you're going to have to encourage them and move them along, but, but these, are, these are the top-notch students. Okay, so she took that. And right from day one, she encouraged them, she challenged them, she pushed them. 
Sometimes they said they couldn't do it. She said, yes, you can. They got to the point where they really believed they could. Got to the end of the year. They were not just the top academic class in that elementary school. They were the top academic class in the entire school district. And it was then that the principal told her that he hadn't been honest, that these were not the brightest and the best. They had all been in the lower half of their class. But he knew she could draw it out of them, and they began to believe it too. We will live up to what we really believe. If we think we are failures, we will never fully accomplish everything that God has for us. We're gonna live up to our expectations. I would suggest that what we need to do is to allow God to tell us his version of our story, that we climb up on daddy's lap and say, would you show me what you really think? See, what he thinks is so much better. See, I think if we're sitting there with our heavenly father, individually, that he would say things like, David Hauser, you've never wavered in your faith. Karen Martin, you're holy and righteous. Kathy Miller, you're a child of God. Judy Itzis, you're my faithful friend. That's what God would say. Dan Lorenz, you're my treasured possession. See, God's perspective is so much different than how we think. His story is one of how we have been made holy and righteous, how we are pure and spotless, how we are clean and perfect in his sight, how we've been transferred from, from darkness into his light, how we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You were once alienated from God, but now you have been brought near. That God has adopted you into his family, and made you his child. See, his story is a story of amazing love and forgiveness. What we need to recognize to really grasp this is that we are in Christ. I challenge you to, to do a study on that concept, in Christ or in him. Look those up in a concordance. Dozens of times in the New Testament, that phrase, that concept is seen. One of my favorites, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be in Christ? You know, if you think about it, it's talking about your status. And I'm not talking about your Facebook posts, all right? I'm talking about our state of being, what we're really like. You know, if I, if I take this, this chocolate candy bar and I put it in this box, then we say that the candy bar is in the box, Right? It's, it's, it's relation of one thing to the other. We are, right now, we are in the chapel, right? The, the water is in the bottle. The candy bar is in the box. So whatever happens to the box happens to the candy bar. If the box is flying, guess what? The candy bar is flying. You with me? If the box is under the chair... Candy bars under the chair. If the box gets tossed into a tub of water, guess what? The candy bar is going to get wet. If the box gets shaken, the candy bar gets shaken because it's in the box. 
guess what? You're in Christ. Whatever is true about him is true about you. Is Christ perfect? You're perfect. Is Christ holy and righteous? You're holy and righteous. Are you following me? We are in Christ. God sees you as he sees Jesus because you are in Christ. Colossians 3, it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ. Let me play you a quick video to kind of demonstrate this. This is you, okay? You're going along life. You're happy as Larry. You're not doing the things you said you would do and you keep doing the things you said you wouldn't do. But by and large, you're thinking, hey, this is me. But you know that there's a gap between you and God. And the reason for that gap is you are born in sin. Part of the curse of Genesis 3 means that you're born in the state of sin. It defines you. It is your identity. Now, it's even worse than that, okay? Because inside you is a sinful nature. This is why you keep doing the things that you shouldn't do and the things you should do you don't do why because in your heart is sin and so you can't just go it's so unfair that I was born in sin well if it's unfair stop sinning but you can't why because sin is born in you and you've got the sinful heart within you that drives you towards sinful desires now you can be as good as you like you can come to church every Sunday but there you are in sin it's how you're stuck okay you can take the hundred day dare that I gave you last week and you can go let's throw some Bible in there and you can put that on top but you're still stuck in sin just stuck in sin with the Bible Okay, you can go to gym, you can live out all of your New Year's resolutions, you can be super good, you can banting your life away and have so much energy from your banting that you cannot believe it, but you're stuck in sin. And what so many people do then is we come along to this and we want to massage this. We go, Oh, I'm sure you can change. It's okay, it's okay, don't worry. Why don't you go for some counseling? And we pull moralistic, therapeutic deism and we tell people, no, just be fully you. And they go, okay, I'll just be fully you. And then they be fully you. And then they're in sin. And sin is in them. And they're separated from God. And they know it. And they know it. But God, in his grace, sends his son into the world. And this marvelous son comes and lives the life that we could never live. And he's baptized and he obeys and he's obedient and he lives a perfect life. And then he goes to the cross and he dies for those sins. But then he walks out of the grave. And we're told that when he walks out of the grave, he breaks the curse of sin over us. And so we are no longer defined by sin. And now we are told that we can be found in Christ and that his glorious righteousness can start to be the identity that we can embrace. And so now even when we sin, we are found in Christ. It's marvelous. But the bad news is we continue to sin because we have the sinful nature still rattling around on the inside. But what did Christ promise in John 14? He says, not just them and me, but I in them as well. And so not only will I cover them with my righteousness, I'll also take that unrighteous nature from within them and I'll put myself within them and so I'll change them from within and so Christ will be in you and you will be in Christ and you will be sealed in the Holy Spirit and then with that, you will be hidden in God for all eternity and nothing can take that away. There you are, in there in Christ, Christ in you, sealed with the Spirit, in God, locked and loaded, ready to go. That's you. Now you can have days where you go, well, I'm not having a very good day as a Christian today. And you go, well, that's good to admit. You're still in there. That's where you are. 
I still give in to habitual sin. That's okay. You should put that to death, death, but there you are. You're in there. I don't feel loved by the love of God, but you are. Look where you are. You're hidden in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your righteousness in God secured. And the great news, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians tells us, changing you from the inside. You are in Christ. So let me make this practical. Two illustrations. So suppose you have applied for a job. Hundreds of other people applied for the same job. It's down to three people. You happen to be one of those last three people. And you get ready for that final interview and you do everything right and get there You're all dressed up and ready for all the questions and you go through the interview and you do amazing every question. You've got a great answer for and two days later you get the phone call that you've been waiting for and you got the job. That's reason for rejoicing. But let's rewind and let's say that phone call comes and you didn't get the job. Or let's say you didn't even get to the last three people. You didn't even make it that far. What's your response then? See, I'm not telling you that every bad thing that happens in your life comes from God. Don't misunderstand. But I am saying that if those things throw us for a loop every time, that maybe our focus is in the wrong place. Maybe we're not seeing our story from God's perspective. Maybe we're not seeing the author's story about us. Maybe we're just seeing it from our limited perspective. Sarah Walton is a stay-at-home mom with four kids under 10. Kind of sounds like my daughter in heart. She wrote this, she's also an author, she wrote this. A couple of years ago, while my family was making a quick trip to, the, to a department store, one of our children started losing control. Our little boy began to struggle with a verbal and aggressive outburst as his little mind seemed to turn into someone else. This was nothing new for us as we had been seeking help for this for years, but it made me freshly aware of our struggle as I saw the eyes of those around us casting silent but loud judgment. Get control of that child. Clearly there's no discipline in that home. If that were my child, they would never behave like that way, that way in a store. As I felt my motherhood being clearly judged, I turned to one woman who had been casting a disapproving look and exclaimed, don't judge me, you have no idea what challenge we live with. I had had it with the dirty looks and the silent judgment that I often felt from those around me. My very identity as a mother was being challenged and I was not okay with that. While this woman could have been more gracious, the real problem was that I was letting her determine my worth and my identity. She had no clue the challenge that God had entrusted our family, yet what it revealed in my own heart was that I was seeking after my identity and how good of a mom I was rather than who I was in Christ. The even greater sadness of the situation is that instead of being the aroma of Christ to this woman, I had lashed out at her in the midst of my identity crisis. All right, so let me ask you a question or two on that story. What if if in that moment of frustration... Sarah Walton had remembered who she really was in Christ. See, what if it didn't make any difference to her what those other people thought? What if instead she saw her heavenly father saying, you're accepted, you're loved by me? See, wouldn't that change the whole situation? And this isn't about just stay at home, Sarah Walton. This is about you on your job. This is about 
you and me in our family situations. This is about you and me when we're out shopping this Christmas time at a mall. See, we tend to live into what we really believe. So what if instead of rehearsing the failures in our minds, what if instead of looking at the things that we've messed up, our faults, our sins, what if instead you were to see yourself as being in Christ, that you were holy and righteous and perfect and without sin and loved by your heavenly Father and accepted by him? Wouldn't that change? And this is not just, this is not just some positive thinking kind of concept. It's, it's aligning our thinking with the truth, with God's truth. It's God's perspective taking hold at a deep, deep level. It's allowing God, the author, to read you his version of your story. You're in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so very grateful for the truth of your word that we are indeed in Christ And even when we have those days that don't go the way that we want them to, that we are still in you, that we are surrounded by you, that you are at work within us, and that you are ultimately the author. You're the one that's writing our story. And from your perspective, we are indeed holy and righteous and cherished children of yours. Well, thank you for the truth of your word. May that truth take deep hold within us. Amen.